As we stand in honor of the word of God, we ask you to hear now from the book of Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 through 18, that which is eternal and inerrant and infallible and entirely sufficient for us and all that we have to need in life and godliness. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the, down the barrier of the dividing wall by accomplishing in his flesh, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We say that every day, not as rote, every week, not as rote tradition, but as a reminder of the truth in a very truthless or truth-denying world. Please bow with me as we pray. Father, we ask that you would use this time. Father, that you would use it primarily for your worship, that you would gain, that you would, uh, in a sense, reap, pile for yourself glory from whatever it is that we do here today. We ask that all that we do would be prescribed from your word. We would not be creating anything by our own wills or imaginations or innovations, but particularly through the preaching of the word. Lord, you have mandated in the scriptures that that is the primary means of grace, the ways in which we are edified and built up, that you sent your son and you sent him first in Mark 1 as a preacher with a message of repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we, in following in step with our Savior's example, we ask that you would now oversee the preaching of your word, despite the fallibility, the sinfulness of the preacher himself, that as a mere servant, you would use him just as a bugler uses a bugle. To, through that apparatus, the message might come through. Your voice might be heard, the voice of the good shepherd for his sheep. Lord, use your word as you describe it, as a sword that's sharp and cuts precisely. Cut away all that is evil. Cut away all that is errant from our thinking and sew us up with the truth that we might more walk in faithfulness each day. Lord, we ask all of these things expectantly and humbly through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, as we continue through the book of Ephesians, we are in chapter two. And what we looked at last week was verses 11 through 13. And what that focus on focused on in that section was on Gentile inclusion, that the far off were brought near. What we saw was is that the, the, the principle, the reality of having Gentiles in the covenant, inside of the people of God was something that the ethnic people of God, Israel, were not willing to immediately accept upon face value. Nevertheless, it was true. So that being brought in in verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you... Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by those who were the circumcision, verse 12, remember that you were separate from Christ. You were excluded. You were outside, but that's over. Now you have been brought near. You're no longer outside looking in. You're no longer out in the cold, shivering, longing to be by the fire where the family is. You're inside with the family. You're a part of the family of God. You've been brought near. Now this week, so if last week was focused on the inclusion of the Gentiles, what this week is focused on in verses 14 through 18 is the unity between the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, how that unity is brought into one new man, that enmity, the divisiveness is abolished by Christ. See, this is the, the genesis, the beginning in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, of the understanding of the new covenant church. Who are the people of God? How do they get along? We understood it in one way for 39 books, for better or for worse. And what are we now? Because you're calling it new. 
the covenant's new, and then this man that you're describing, this, these two people groups being put together and picturing them in one body, you're saying that that man is new. So then what are we? How, how do we relate? How will Gentiles be included amongst the covenant people? So verses 14 through 18 serve as a kind of 101 class. Paul's 101 class, the entry-level freshman class on who the people of God are. And so what we're gonna do as we break it down this afternoon is we're, instead of going sequentially through the verses, like 14 to 15 and all that, we're gonna go categorically. So we're gonna run through those verses several times with different categories in mind. The first category that we're gonna look at is the one of division and enmity. In these verses, we see the category of division and enmity. Enmity, kids, when you think of enmity, hear the word enemy. When you hear enemy, what you think of an enemy, you know that person is against you. They don't like you. They're, you're not your friend. They're fighting against you. So this top first category is that of division and enmity. Look at verse 14. It says, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down, and this is what we're gonna fixate on, the, down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, when you read that, you can read it as just a simple metaphor, a dividing wall, dividing two groups of people, and it functions like that. But this dividing wall actually existed in the first century. There was an actual dividing wall in the temple in Jerusalem. So you have to reorganize your mind. The way that we worship now, you come to church and you just walk in the doors and that's where we function. You gather with locally like-minded believers and that's how we worship. But in the old covenant, worship was rightly done in one place. Faithfulness is everywhere, but you have to rightly worship God in one place. That's in Jerusalem and that's at the temple. And at that temple, there were various divisions. The very inside is called the Holy of Holies. One guy, one Levite chosen by lot goes in there once a year. So that's the most exclusive. Then you have the holy place where a smaller group of Levites, priests chosen by God can be. Then you have the inner court. So that's where Jewish men who are ceremonially clean can be. Then you have a further court outside that. So think about it like almost concentric circles. Further court outside of that one is the court of the women. See, women can't even go further in. And then outside the court of Jewish women, that's the court of the Gentiles. That's where you're allowed to be if you're a Gentile. You're not ethnically Jewish. And when Jesus, in two, at the beginning and the ending of his ministry, comes in and cleans out the temple, the whole flipping the tables over and that whole big scene, that's in the court of the Gentiles. And it's extremely onerous to Jesus for many reasons. One of those is, is the Gentiles have one measly little place to worship and you completely excluded them from that even because you filled it up with calves and doves and sacrifices and money, at all currency changing places. They can't even worship there because you, you used it all up. So that wall actually exists. And this wall we see in narrative form with an actual Ephesian man involved in it. In Acts chapter 21, Paul is accused of taking an Ephesian man, a Gentile on the other side of the wall. Follow along with me in verse 27. When the seven days were almost over to this uh, pact that, that uh, Paul and a few men had made, the Jews from Asia, Upon seeing him, Paul, in the temple began to stir up the, all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple." So Paul, if you're familiar with the flow of the narrative of the book of Acts, this is kind of the last deal in Paul's life. He gets arrested and there's just a, a succession of events that flow off of this false arrest. But all of it goes back to, you took a Gentile on the other side of the wall. And there's a sign, or there's a series, there's uh, many signs on this wall. And it seems as if every uh, 150 years, archaeologists discover another one of these signs. And in big Greek letters on these signs, at the top, it says Thanatos. 
And if you know Greek, you know what thanatos is a derivative of. It means death. And then below it is a further inscription that reads like this. It says, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So it wasn't a joke. It wasn't trespassers will be prosecuted. It's trespassers will be executed if you go on the other side of this wall. And everybody is a trespasser who is not ethnically Jewish. So you could foresee or you could understand rather there being a significant division between these two people groups. Because if you come with us to worship the one true God, then we're gonna kill you. This is a big deal. There's there's real enmity. And it's not only with this wall, which doesn't really necessarily have uh, an explicit grounding in the old covenant law, but there are laws in the old covenant that do bring about enmity. Look at verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is... That enmity, which is what? The law of the commandments contained in the ordinances. So there were laws, commandments, and ordinances that brought about a division. You cannot be with them in certain ways. Listen to Peter describe it in the book of Acts, verse 28. And Peter said to them, meaning the, 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 uh, the house of Cornelius, this Roman man, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. So Peter says, you guys all know that this is unlawful for us to do this. See, to fellowship with, to, to touch, to eat with a Gentile made a Jew in the old covenant ceremonially unclean. Now, to be ceremonially unclean means that you cannot go to gathered worship. You can't be in and amongst the people of God without going through the prescribed cleanliness process. That could be a lot of different things. That could be washing in a certain way. That could be taking your clothes and having them washed in a certain way. That could be just staying outside of the city or in the, uh, the, the wilderness wandering outside of the camp for a certain amount of period of time. It could be a lot of those things. Nevertheless, it wasn't worth it to a Jew. Because if I get near you, you make me unclean. So therefore, I'm just gonna stay away from you all the time. You are a hassle to me. Now, the law of God and the old covenant, it had to be this pedantic. I mean, you hear that law and you think, that's, that's insane, that's over the top. Now, why does the law of God have to be that pedantic? To, did, did touching a Roman, did touching an Ethiopian or an Arabian or a Syrian, did that actually make you somehow germ riddled and unacceptable in God's eyes? Is there some kind of invisible film that got on you? Oh, I mean, of course not. Did that make me complicit in their sin to, to eat with them or to touch an instrument scooping out food from a pot of beans that they touched before me? Did that make me complicit in their life of idolatry? I mean, of of course it didn't, but God had to treat Israel like a toddler coming out of Egypt, getting those laws at Sinai. He's treating that whole people group like a single toddler. What do you tell little kids when you're you're in and around streets, parking lots, driveways, and things like that? At my house, the street is an imaginary electrical fence and it's gonna shock you if you go on the other side of it, right? Do not cross that line. And then they'll be like, she crossed the line into the street. And I want them to be that afraid because you know what I can't do with a toddler? I can't sit a two-year-old and a three-year-old down and say, hey, just so you know, sometimes streets are a little bit unsafe. There's cars and they're bigger than you and they vroom, vroom, they go fast and you're small and they can't see. You can't reason with a toddler because Why? They're a toddler, like they're immature. They can't, they not, they haven't progressed enough. So you just say street bad all the time. And even when you can see that there's nothing in the street, you still yell at them like there is, stop, don't go, because you want them to have that reaction. I don't have the ability to process this. So I just need to know street bad. But then what happens by the time you're in junior high? You're playing touch football in the street. Why? And everybody's fine, relatively fine because you can see the cars coming and you just hop in the yard. And then when the cars go by, you hop back out in the street. You've matured to a level where you can understand there is danger here, but it's not that the street is in of itself an evil thing. God is treating the nation of Israel like that. 
So don't even go near them. Don't sit down and eat with them. Paul in Galatians 3 has to call the law, the old covenant law, a tutor, like a private teacher. It's the Greek word pedagogue, where a private tutor is looking over the shoulder of the student because he's only got one student to deal with and saying, no, 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 don't do that. No, 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 swoop it the other way. No, 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 that's not how you divide like that. You're constantly on them because you only have one student, right? That's what the law was for Old Testament Israel. In a sense, you're micromanaging a nation to keep them out of trouble. Therefore, if an Israelite never develops close ties to a Gentile, they, in theory at least, won't pick up their inherent ungodliness and idolatry, right? At least in theory, right? You never go on the street, you never get hit by a car. You never develop a nearness to a Gentile. You never start worshiping Baal. That's the idea. However, what was originally intended to protect religious purity for an immature, underdeveloped people was distorted into an excuse for ethnic superiority. It was supposed to just be about religious purity, but it gets distorted into ethnic superiority. So the Jews then wrongfully justify by the law their disdain for the Gentiles. So instead of saying that, like, like with kids with the street, you, you, like that I've learned how to handle what it is to go on the street. It's okay if I go get the ball when it goes out there. The street itself is not gonna kill me. Instead, you stand on the curb and look down with disgust upon all the street people. You walk in the street, you are an idiot. You're gonna get killed and you don't even know it. Instead of it being a way that this is protecting to me, it's a superiority complex. I'm better than you. And that becomes the sin of partialism, which that's really what Paul's dealing with in these four verses. The sin of partialism, plain and simple, that's all this is. The sin of racism is really just partialism. It's, it, it's the, uh, the idea of being unduly or loathsomely prejudiced towards any group of people, any image bearer. See, Jesus dealt with this frequently and abruptly, did he not? Who's the one woman that he's gonna be seen with in public by themselves? It's a Samaritan woman, right? Ethnically not appropriate. What about the, the parable of the good guy who takes care of the lowly beaten down guy? Who is that guy in Jesus' parable? He's a Samaritan, a, a Gentile or a half-breed, even worse. And then you think about like the Syrophoenician woman who's coming and desperately begging for her daughter to be healed. And Jesus says, it's not appropriate to give what is the children to dogs. And she goes, yeah, but even dogs eat off the kid's table. And he's blown away by her faith and heals her daughter. And then you, you think about the Roman centurion. The Roman centurion, remember he comes to Jesus, my, my, my uh, servant who is just my right-hand man. I love him to death. He's on death's door. And he, but don't even come to my house. I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. And Jesus says, I have never seen faith like this in anybody. Everybody is all throughout four gospels is marveling or astonished at Jesus. Jesus is only positively astonished or marveling at, at one person. And it's a Gentile, a Roman centurion. So Jesus is constantly butting heads with this sin of partialism that's been bred into the people wrongfully uh, through this reality, this enmity and this division. And partialism is sin. Straight up, it's, it's sin. And we live with all of it, with it in all of us. Look at James 2, one through four. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, or your translation might say partialism. For if a man comes into your assembly, this is in the church, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And then look at verse eight. If however you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, this is in the church. That's what Peter, I mean, Paul is dealing with here. In the church, because that's really the only place that we have any influence, correct? Legislative influence is here in the church. Now, don't let this 
sin of partialism just wash over you without striking your heart? I mean, is there a people, you have to think, is there a people group, a collection, a category of image bearers that you dislike on face value? I mean, of course not, pastor, I'm colorblind. Well, okay, yeah, we know racism is deplorable and obviously that's partialism, obviously. But push past that. Push past that, that obvious thing that we know we must not do Look deeper. What about Democrats? What about socialists? What about liberals? What about illegal immigrants of any nationality? We all harbor, because we're all sinners. This version of this, I mean, think about, if you don't, we we get so myopic as Americans when I think about our own history. In 1994, do you know what's going on in the country of Rwanda and Africa? There are two groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis, and the Hutus are murdering 650,000 Tutsis. And do you know what the difference between them was? Nose size. That's it. Nose size. Hutus have wider nose, Tutsis have longer noses. And the Hutus are the bigger, stronger ones and killed 650,000. 1994, that's happening. So this exists in all of us everywhere. What are we going to do with it. If there exists anyone, anyone that you would not want to see saved by the blood of Christ and brought out from the farness into the nearness, out of the cold, into the warmth, then you need to repent of the sin of partialism. The exact same sin that Paul is dealing with here with these Jews and Gentiles. See, you're no better than Jewish Christians ostracizing Gentiles. And in the same way that will happen later on in the New Testament of Gentile Christians ostracizing Jewish ones. I mean, we're no better than Jonah if we do this. Remember Jonah? This doesn't make it into the kids' storybook Bibles, but in Jonah 4, 1 through 3, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Why? Because the king was fighting against him, because he was being uh, wrongly persecuted? No, because an entire city-state of murderous, barbaric pagans laid down their sores and repented and put their faith in Yahweh. That's what displeased him. That's what made him mad. And he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a mean, angry God. No, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for death is better to me than life. Why is Jonah fleeing from God in the early chapters? Is it because he thinks this is calling is too hard, God? I'm overwhelmed by this. Who am I to go and take the gospel to the Ninevites? No, he's like, I don't wanna go there because he might actually save them. He might bring them into the kingdom and I don't want them here. So I would rather them all slide into eternal damnation than get in a boat and go say a handful of words, repent and believe the gospel because God's gonna destroy your city in 40 days. That's all he had to do. If, if I could get that kind of evangelistic success, I'd do that in a heartbeat. You walk around and say that for like three days and then the whole city repents. Man, you're, you're on TV by that point. But he doesn't care at all. This is the sin of partialism, he did not want to unify with them in the people of God. And that sin lives in all of us and we have to kill it every single day. So we look at division and we look at enmity, but let's look at a different category now, the other side of the coin of reconciliation and unity. Look at verse 14. That dividing wall, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall. See, the barrier dividing Jews and Greeks, making a categorical distinction is gone. Look at Galatians 3, just explain it in ad nauseum. 327, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Everybody in Christ, you can think about it like this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. There is no longer a prescribed division. The tutor of the law, the babysitter of the law is gone. 
Now there's no more distinction. It doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge that you are a female and you are a male, that you come from this ethnicity, that you're this height, that you have these talents. It's not saying that there's just this gray, amorphous blob of ambiguity in the church. No, it just means that those, those um, uniquenesses don't divide us. They don't rank us anymore. We're all one in Christ. They have the law written on their hearts now. You don't need to be babysat on the outside by a tutor. And God has made clear who are Abraham's descendants from Genesis chapter 12. Who were the ones that God promised? It was your descendants. And who are those people? Verse 29 cannot be misunderstood. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You are the heirs. Has nothing to do with ethnicity. If you are in Christ, then you are the heirs. And if we're all in Christ together, the same Christ, then we're all heirs. And we've been made into verse 15, one new man, because he abolishes in his flesh the enmity, crush that enmity, which is the law and commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself, he might make the two to one new man, thus establishing peace. See, the church of Christ is to be totally united. They're as united as a human body is united. You cannot divide a human body and it survive in any way. And you take two and you make one new man. So out of the entirety of all of the people groups in the world, because you have Jews and then Gentiles incorporates everybody else, every other ethnicity you could possibly ever imagine. You take those and you make them one new man. If you divide it, they're dead. They're a mutilated carcass. You are now one new man. That's the image that, that, uh, that Paul uses for the church, which is the body of Christ. Indivisible. You divide it, it doesn't live anymore. This is what the thing that Jesus created. He abolished it and he might make, he made this happen. He made the church to be this by abolishing the enmity that used to exist. He brought about oneness and reconciled, just in case you didn't get it in verse 15, you get it in verse 16, and might reconcile them both in one body, one body to God through the cross by, have, by it having put to death the enmity. So you're a body, in case you missed it. The ethno-religious enmity has been killed and the weapon of its execution was the cross of Christ. That's what he killed it with all the division between people groups. And on the flip side, what does his death then do? It kills that enmity and then it's a two-edged sword that then brings about unity. It's one thing for the wall to go down. It's another thing for all the people to come across and embrace each other in the middle of where the wall used to be. And Christ says, I don't let that be your deal. I make you one. You are all now one, joined together in love by the blood of Christ. There is only one body of Christ and everyone who has been born again by repentance and faith is a part of it. Just due to our finiteness, we only can meet with so many people. And due to time changes, we can't meet with the people in Nigeria right now because they're going to bed. But we're here and we unify together. But were we there, we would unify with them because it's all one body, all one in Christ. All saved, verse 17 will say, by the same gospel. And he came, so it's talking about Jesus. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. In a very real sense, Jesus did come and preach because he did, Gentiles did hear him preach. And that famous scene in, in John 12, where the Gentiles, those Greek men, come up to Philip and Andrew and say, sirs, we would see Jesus. They wanna see Jesus, but by far Christ is preaching through the apostles and then through subsequent God-called preachers that go out to all the Gentiles on all the world. So these preachers are the voice of Christ to them. And they're all saved, all these peoples are saved by the same gospel. Acts 15, 11, Peter says as much. He says, but we believe that we are saved, Jews, through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they Gentiles are also. It's the same gospel that saves us both. Jesus didn't institute a new gospel for non-Jews. 
he completed the payment for the same gospel that has been around since Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That promise is fulfilled in Christ and it's been for all people in all ages. This is why we can't affirm that God has two peoples, Israel and the church. To do so would be to rebuild the dividing wall and teeter on top of it. The dividing wall has been destroyed. To do so would be to insist that God has one new man and one old man. To do so would be to dissect the body into two different halves that somehow live cut in half. It would be to divide the very spirit of God or to be to, to claim that there are two gospels. But that, all that's denied in these verses. This is why we can advocate for the gospel alone as the solution for our societies, every society's sins of partiality. That is the solution. So there's a lot of talk today about racial reconciliation, that word reconciliation being used a whole lot. And everything that's being done is the equivalent of trying to put out a house fire with an eight ounce bottle of Ozarka. It's not gonna work. See, the only way the sinners can be reconciled to each other is if they are first reconciled to God. That's how he makes one new man. Only after that can they be reconciled to each other. You can make all the laws, the regulations, the policies and the protocols that you want, go, go for it. But to my knowledge, having law, murder being a criminal act has not stopped murdering. That still continues going on. So please make laws, but don't put any hope in those. That's not gonna reconcile anybody. That's just telling two little boys who are fighting on the playground, hey, say you're sorry, give them a hug. They're like, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not gonna work unless they're reconciled to God first dealt with their sin before God, then they see their sin towards man. I have to be vertically reconciled before I can ever have any hope of being horizontally reconciled at all. What does verse 16 say? It says that reconciliation comes among, comes among men through the cross. What does verse 17 say? Peace comes through the good news of Christ. That's where it comes from. That's what we have to hope for. That's what we have to labor towards to see. And our third category as we run through these verses is the peace of Christ. Did you see in these verses that the word peace appears four times? In verses 14 through 18, the word peace appears four times. Jesus in verse 14 is the church's peace. He doesn't merely bring peace. He is peace. How? How is he that? But by destroying all distinctions between man's kind, between mankind. He broke down that dividing law, dividing wall in a temple. Do you remember in John 2, 21, when Jesus is talking about when he cleanses the temple and he calls himself the new temple? That's where we're reconciled. See, where you used to go to worship God through was the temple and it was all kinds of segregated, men, women, Jews, Gentiles. Now you go to the person and work of Jesus Christ where we all come in, men, women, and Jews and Gentiles together. That's how he is our peace. In verse 15, he abolished the enmity by fulfilling the law. See, unity between Jews and Gentiles was always possible, even in the old covenant. See also Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, three Gentile women who were in the very lineage of Jesus. It was always possible to be unified, but it entailed a burdensome cultural accommodation. See, proselytes or converts had to bring up, had to take on Israelite uh, culture, circumcision, holy days, cleanliness laws, all the way down. But it was possible, but still cumbersome to do that. What Christ came and fulfilled all of that Old Testament law. Look at verse 50, or Matthew 5, verse 17, when Jesus says, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill so the ceremonial laws, everything to do with worship, so what animals you sacrifice and how you do it, cleanliness laws, and then the civil laws, like if your donkey is, you loan it out and it dies with your neighbor, this is how much he has to repay you. All those laws are fulfilled in Christ. The moral law is what we are governed by now as the people of God. 
But Christ doesn't abolish the moral law. He just fulfills the ceremonial and the civil in his perfect death, resurrection, and sacrificial payment so that now there's no longer a full-fledged cultural adaptation that's necessary. You don't have to become an Israelite in order to be a part of the people of God. So the same is true today in the church. See, what we do with missions is we go and we take out uh, our gospel, but we sometimes don't realize we're taking out our culture as well. Let me give you an example. First, I was listening to an interview the other day of this Brazilian pastor who's here in the States earning this doctorate degree and he's gonna go back and he has, he's connected with all these guys, solid reformed Baptist preacher uh, with a network there. It's growing in Brazil. And he was just describing and talking with the guys who were Americans. Like, yeah, our singing's just a little, a little different in Brazil than y'all do here. See, sometimes y'all here, you're just afraid to uh, emote at all. And now we in Brazil, we're, we're all over the place. And they're like, yeah, we've been over there. It's, it's real different. Yeah, y'all are singing real different. Nothing wrong. It's just different. Let me give you another example. Well, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I went on this mission trip to Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea and this tribe, the Nakwe people. And you get to the Nakwe people by flying and landing a bush plane on a grass tarmac that they just cut trees out and there's just grass. And if you don't stop the plane soon enough, you go into the river. So it's, it's the real deal. And then you hike for an hour and a half and then, then you get to where these people are. And 20 years before that we got there, it, they were still uh, unclothed cannibals. But by the time we're there, the, a church has been planted, the Bible's in their language, they have elders, they're seated and clothed in their right minds like the Gerasene demoniac, right? And, and we're, we're talking and we're talking about the same Bible. It was wonderful, but I can't help but think when I'm out there seeing all of these things that they could just be doing better, like the grass tarmac. I saw a big mower out here. You gotta get gas, you gotta fix that thing. You guys ever thought about just fencing this off and getting some goats? You ever thought about that? And you're like, well, the missionary said, well, we tried, we gave them a cow. And then after just a month, they just killed it and ate it. And I was like, well, I don't fault them for that. Everybody likes beef and you don't get beef in the jungle. And then we go out to where they live. And we're not talking like these people, nah, they don't really have electricity. They don't have hammers and nails, primitive. And I'm seeing how they, you know, they, they, everything grows. It's tropical. So everything grows year round, bananas, uh, mangoes, coconuts, all these things. And what they'll do when they want a banana is they'll just cut the whole tree down. And I'm like, y'all ever thought about teaching them to get ladders? And they're like, We've, we have, but they still just cut it down. And guess what? Another one grows in like 48 hours. So they don't care. And then they had, when we were sleeping up on these houses on stilts, this, they had a pig that they caught and it would just run in the camp, just, just all night long. You can't sleep. It's running underneath you. And I'm like, man, have you ever thought about telling them? I did really say all these things to the missionaries. You ever thought about telling them to get a pen? pin that sucker in and then you can breed it. You don't have to chase them down. Like, yeah, we tried, but we tell them when you see a pregnant sow in the woods, don't kill it because it has babies inside it. And then you'll have 14 pigs to eat. And they're like, but the babies taste so good. And I'm like, well then there you go. So I, all of these things that I'm thinking culturally and it dawned on me, they have the gospel. They have a biblical church. They have elders. They have the Bible. Who cares if their agriculture doesn't meet Western standards? It doesn't matter. That's me forcing my culture on them when they have the gospel. And I should be being taught by these faithful brothers. So that barrier is removed because we've been reconciled by the cross. Look at verse 16. Reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. You know what reconcile means? Kids, the word reconcile means that you used to be friends and then you're not, and then you become friends again. You get brought back together to restore friendly relations between or to cause to coexist in harmony. That's what the word reconcile means. So we are vertically reconciled to God and then horizontally reconciled to the cross. Christ's death and human, Christ's death rather, kills human division in his people, in his body, kills it. We don't have time to read it, but 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 19, if you wanna read more about the reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given as the people of God, please go and read those. But what Jesus does 
one Jesus does for all people. Verse 17, as we saw before, he came and preached. Jesus, one Jesus, offering the same peace and the same reconciliation with God and with man and for all people. There's not different Jesuses for every people group. And because there's not different Jesuses for every people group, then that means that you as the individual need to put an impetus on knowing the real Jesus, not the one that you create. Well, my Jesus would never do that. You don't have your own. There is one, the Jesus would never do that or never do this. It's nearly impossible to continue unreconciled with someone if you are shoulder to shoulder with them, kneeling at the base of the same cross. That's where you are reconciled. You can't, you're receiving the same grace at the foot of the same cross. That's how Christ brings us together and it's him doing it exclusively. We're familiar with John 14, six, right? Jesus saying to his disciples, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. That word, the kids, school's about to start. What's a definite article? Definite article is the. An indefinite article is a. He is a way. He is a truth. He is a life. It doesn't say that. It says he's the. That means he's the only one, definite. The only one. So that's true for Jews, Gentiles, Portuguese, Ugandan, Vietnamese, Americans, and Russians. Everybody else. Definite article was not a typo. There's one way to the Father. Look at verse 18. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, through him alone. He's the only way to forgiveness of your evil and acceptance with God. He was Abraham's way. He was Lot's way. He was Deborah's way. He was David's way. He was Esther's way and John's way and Paul's way and Peter's way and Mary's way and your way and my way. He's the only one. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone. And it's one spirit in the church. That's what verse 18 says. One spirit to the Father. Every true church full of true believers has the same exact Holy Spirit. Some churches don't have more, and then some have less. Every true church full of true believers has the same Holy Spirit in the same amount. The Spirit doesn't function differently in Africa than he does in Europe or as he does in Australia or Southeast Asia. Peter acknowledges this same Spirit within Gentile converts in Acts 15, 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. We all have him. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So you can say to everybody, if you have the spirit of God in you, then you are my brother and you are my sister because it's the same spirit no matter where you are or no matter what you look like, what you used to believe or how you used to live, if you have that same spirit, you are my brother, you are my sister, regardless of anything else. So we have to apply this. Ephesians 4.3, we'll get there one of these years, says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So we're to be diligent as the church, preserving the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. So your question to answer today is how are you doing that? How are you as a member of our church working to preserve the bond of unity and the spirit of peace? How are you making it obvious to outsiders that everyone in here has been reconciled together as one body by the death of Christ? Let me just ask you to think about something. Did you know Did you know that there are people in our church, in this gathering right now, who are willingly and joyfully not participating in their natural cultures, their cultures in the flesh, just to be joined with the body of Christ? Do you know that? That they are finding their fellowship, they are finding their meaningful relationships here 
instead of somewhere else that would be naturally more comfortable. People for whom English is their second language are here. People from various ethnicities, people who've adopted children from different backgrounds, people for whom American food is distasteful. They're here. And above all else, get this. There are people who are from California here. (laughs) They're here. I ask you then, as a member of our church, do you know them? Do you know all of them? If not, why not? See, it's not enough for the pastor, for me to know them. I know all y'all. Y'all need to know all y'all. See, that's Texan for be friendly and get to know each other. See, all of us through Christ have access in one spirit to the Father, all of us. That makes us a blood-bought family. To one father is how the verse ends in verse 18. So you got to get to know your brothers and sisters and see you really know brothers and sisters well enough. And here's the test. If they at some point, maybe not all the time, hopefully not all the time, annoy you because you're not brothers and you're not sisters unless you sometimes are just a little, you got to tone it down, brother. You got to, come on, sister. You just... You can't do that. Let me just give you an example. Just get to know Mickey Matusik and you will be annoyed. Let me just tell you. Let me just tell you this. He's Polish. He's from Chicago. He likes the White Sox, polka music. He eats fish head soup at Christmas. I'm already annoyed. And I know I, you are too. Not just kidding. Mickey is a great example of somebody who gets to know other people. But we as a church, in order to live this out, can't just be like, yes. Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled. No, we have been reconciled. So then it is my duty is incumbent upon me to know all y'all and get to know you so that we can be the living evidence that that Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35, they will know that you are my disciples if you what? Have love for one another. That's how they'll know. And you can't love people that you don't know. And the the text says the enmity is gone. The barriers are gone. The distinctions are gone. The rankings are gone. We don't have seats based on socioeconomic ability, poor people up front, rich people in the back or the other way around. We don't have seats based on anything else, maybe based on height, tall people, do yourself a favor, let the shorties sit up front, you sit in the back. But that's just kindness and love for each other. We come in to the gathering and all of that stuff just goes away because we've all been reconciled together. As verse 15 says, the enmity, which is the law of the commandments of the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it, having put to death the enmity. The very place of sacrifice was the very weapon of unity and the death of disunity. And that's why we come and preach Christ and him crucified exclusively every Lord's day. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we see the glory of your work throughout redemptive history in all of these instances and the different groups, the different genders, the, the two genders, we, we see the different uh, ethnicities, we see the different levels of wealth and means, skills and abilities. And you've been pleased to use unlikely means, certainly, but involving every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And Father, we see that in these passages on reconciliation, on one new man, you have melded us together into one. And we know that it is true that we are one, but we also know that it is incumbent upon us to behave as one. So would you help us with that? Would you help us to get out of our comfort zone, to put ourselves on somebody else's home turf, where we know that we cannot fix our broken, partialized, uh, divided culture. We can't fix it by just getting new laws and voting for better people. 
we should have better laws, Lord, and we want better leaders, absolutely. But we know that what we can do is insist and fight to see it be true inside this fellowship. So Lord, we ask for your help in that. We ask for your help that we would be quick to repent when we sin against each other. We ask that we will be close enough and friends enough and spending time enough that we can even have the opportunity to sin against one another and then ask for forgiveness and then repent to each other. Lord, we, we know we have busy lives and we have things going on, but may we make it a priority, not so that we become uh, inwardly focused to a, to a degree where we have no concern for the lost, but Father, so that we might be more effective to the loss, so that inviting people here to our fellowship would be an undeniable gospel tract to the lost, to see it living and breathing in front of them, the very body of Christ enlivened by one spirit. Father, we, we want to be eminently useful in the realms of evangelism and discipleship. And we know that that can't flow from an unhealthy body just as an unhealthy human physical body can't work by any good means when it's a subpar health, when it has broken bones. So Lord, we ask that you would make us more effective. Even in this season where we're in a bit of a wilderness wandering uh, without a permanent space of our own, that you would use this time to shore us up as the people, as the spiritual reality of the church itself being these saints gathered here together so that wherever we end up, it would just become a, uh, a beacon of the gospel. It would become a fortress behind enemy lines that does indeed have high walls, but it does also have open doors that we might be a sanctuary for the saved and a, a hospital for the lost. Lord, we, are, we feel the weight of these things. And we know that many of these things are sensitive topics. Help us to walk together arm in arm as brothers and sisters and, and despite all of the chaos that surrounds us, that we might have peace in here because we know and we confess that your son Jesus is himself our peace who has made us into one. We thank you for that reality and, and sink it deep into our hearts. We ask this all in Christ's name, amen.